Our series is called No One Like God, and indeed there is none like God. Romans chapter 11, verse 33 is where we'll be today as we examine the truth of this fact next. Join us, won't you? And again, greetings. Welcome to Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse from Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. Today, as we continue our series, No One Like God, we find ourselves in Romans chapter 11, verse 34. It's there that we get a look at just how amazing God's ways are. Won't you join us? We'll also take a quick trip to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. With today's edition of Graceful Truth, brought to you by your friends here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City, Let's catch up with Pastor Steve Converse with today's broadcast and God's amazing ways. Well, we see God's wisdom not just in our justification, but also in our sanctification in Romans 5 through 8. It discusses the permanent nature, the persevering nature of our salvation. And it embraces the Savior's, the, the sinner's need for sanctification. Well, how is God's wisdom revealed in these chapters? We saw it through justification. Why should we not go on sinning so that grace may increase? Paul asked that question in Romans 6. If we're saved by, justi- by, by faith through God granting us justification and we're to be more like Christ, we're to be totally set apart for him more and more and more each and every day in our sanctification. Here's the dilemma. If salvation, if salvation is done by works, that destroys grace. No one could be saved because no one could provide sufficient works to be saved. Or if salvation is of grace, then we must be free to sin greatly because they're all forgiven. You see the kind of dilemma. And God solves this problem by showing us that we are never justified apart from being regenerated or being made alive in Christ. This means that Christians have been given a new nature and that this new nature, the very life of Christ is within us. And that will begin to produce good works, fruit, corresponding with the character of God. It's the only real proof that we have someone saved, if you stop and think about it, other than their profession. Just as we've been joined together with Adam by our natural descent from him, so that when Adam sinned, we all sinned, the Bible says. And when Adam was judged by the penalty of death for sin, so too we were all judged Those who have put their faith, their trust in Christ, those who have been saved by the Savior, are now joined to Christ, the Bible says. And we're justified, not by our own work, but by his work on the cross. And we've been made spiritually alive in him. See, if we're truly saved, beloved, we're going to be different than the people we were before. And because this is God's work, it's not our work, it means that we cannot undo it and somehow go back to being what we were before. And since we cannot go back, the only way is to move forward. That's why in Romans chapter 6, verse 11, speaking of sanctification, Paul says in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Or in Romans chapter 8, we saw in verses 1 through 4, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh in a sacrifice for sin. 
That means that salvation is utterly of grace. But then you follow it up and it says he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. I mean, who could think up a gospel like this? Only God. I mean, I just say, oh, you know what? You're all going to hell. <laughs> I don't have time for this. You know, I mean, I, but, but God is so gracious over and over and over again. We would never do it the way God did it. Because, first of all, we don't naturally hold grace and works together. Because if we emphasize morality, as some people do, we begin to think that somehow we can be saved by our good works. And that's what we strive to do. And by doing that, we, we, we set aside grace. But if, on the other hand, if we emphasize grace, knowing that we cannot possibly be saved by our inadequate and polluted works... We have a natural tendency to do away with works entirely and say, well, it doesn't matter what you do. And you slide down the slippery slope of antinomianism, which basically says, hey, you know what? It's all covered by God's grace. Do whatever you want. If we hold to grace, we repudiate works. And if we hold to works, we repudiate grace. But God has devised a gospel that is entirely and completely of grace and yet produces the most exceptional works in those who have been saved. No wonder Paul says, well, the depth of the riches, the wisdom of God. It's incredible. And not only that, but thirdly here, the wisdom of God is displayed in human history in chapters 9 to 11. The problem is that God made special salvation promises to the Jewish people. And yet, in spite of these promises, the majority of Jews are not responding to the gospel. They're not being saved. And so the question is, well, has the purpose of God failed? And Paul answers the question, no. A thousand times no. Paul, God will be faithful to his chosen people, Israel. And even though for this short period of time here in the church, these promises are being extended to Gentiles, and he's adding Gentiles into the fold, that will provoke Israel to jealousy and bring them back to faith in their Messiah eventually. I mean, who could think of a plan like that? I'm going to choose Israel but then they're not going to listen, so I'm going to set them on the sideline and I'm going to start saving Gentiles. And that's going to cause Israel to be jealous. And then when the Gentiles are all saved, because of Israel's disbelief, then I'll start working on the Jews again and they will be saved. It's just amazing. We can't even understand it apart from biblical revelation. I mean, it's hard. Well, what does the Bible say about wisdom? What does the Bible say about wisdom? I just wrote a couple things down here, a couple verses that you can um, refer to. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 to 17, Paul writes this, Be careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. So we can have some wisdom. This is something that God can grant us. He, he, He gives us wisdom. We don't have entire complete wisdom like God, just like we don't have complete knowledge like God. But he writes there, making the most of every opportunity. Why? Because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So we should be all about asking God for wisdom. Or Colossians 4, 5 says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. It doesn't say be a wise guy in the way that you act toward outsiders. It says be wise. Remember, understanding what wisdom is. The application of the knowledge that you possess Applying that for the best moral good. Make the most, it says, of every opportunity. See, when you look at that verse and you're out 
and you're shopping and you get stuck in the grocery line <laughs> behind somebody who just doesn't have the payment ready and they don't have the bags ready and you're in a hurry. You know, what's the Bible say? Make the most of every opportunity. You need to be aware of who, who's around you. Maybe you just need to chit-chat a little bit. Okay, wh- what does it call you to do? Make the most of every opportunity. So you pray for that person. You, you, you take time to, to at least let them know if it's, you can't do it right then, you will pray for them. Or in James chapter 1, verse 5, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, where do you go? He should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. If you don't know how to apply the knowledge that you have, ask God. We're to seek wisdom, but where can this be found? Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. This doesn't mean a fear that speaks of someone cowering in a quarter, corner, afraid that they're going to get hit with a stick or something, but it, ha- it speaks of a fear that is a, an awesomeness. You're just in awe of who God is. It's a healthy respect, and you have to begin there. Secondly, you have to begin with understanding the Word of God. Psalm 119 verse 98 says that your commands make me wiser than my enemies. Your commands, the Word of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, Paul urged his young pastor friend Timothy, his young disciple, to continue in the study of, of God's inspired scriptures because the reason is, is they are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. When's the last time you spoke to someone who was not a Christian and rather than give them a slick little track or give them whatever, encourage them to read the Bible. Go read the Bible. You really want salvation? Read the Bible. That's what they should be doing. That's what the word of God says. They, it's, wise, it's able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. You don't have to give them a ton of books. Give them the Gospel of John. Let them read through 1 John. Then sit down and ask them, do you have any questions about what you read? See, if they're sincerely searching, they're going to be willing to go to the source that's the only one that has the answers. And if they're not, if they're just playing a game with you, then so be it. You save yourself money. You don't have to give away all these tracks. But always ask them, do you, do you have a copy of the Bible? Will you be willing to read it before I even answer your question? And establish that fact. See, the problem is we don't really believe in God's wisdom. Because if we really believe that God is all wise. And if he really wanted, if we really wanted to be wise ourselves, we would do just that. Martin Luther said this about wisdom. He says, we are accustomed to admit freely, freely that God is more powerful than we are. But not that he is wiser than we are. To be sure, we say that he is, but when it comes down, when it comes to a showdown, we do not want to act on what we say. See, from our perspective, when you honestly look at it, the workings of God are mysterious. They're irregular. We want events to run in a certain way. We want the little train to go down the track without, a, missing, a, without missing a bump. You know, it's just perfect. Everything's in its order. Very predictable. That's not how God works. And somehow when that happens when God takes the sidetrack instead of going down the main rail in our life and we throw our hands up and go, what are you doing? We think somehow we can do things better than God, the one who created us. And what that means finally is that we don't trust God to order both not only the means but the ends of his plan in our life. So we take things into our own hands. Sure, God says this, God says that, but you know what? I think it's best that I do it this way. And we see even within the church People applying the wisdom, the foolish wisdom, the human wisdom to such a sacred thing. It's the matter of salvation. I mean, God has ordered all these things together perfectly for his good plan. 
And when you're speaking of the matters of salvation, think of all the details involved with all this. You're not just talking about a year's plan. I mean, some of you are into planning. You know, you plan seminars, you do this, you do that. Think if you had to plan the whole universe. And not just universe, but all the other ones. I mean, think if, you know, I mean, when it talks about the greatness of God, I mean, his hand just spans the universe. All the water is in his hand, it says. In the hollow of his hand, we read. I mean, I don't know if you've ever flown across the Pacific Ocean. Because there's nothing out there. Nothing. And yet God holds all that water, plus all the other oceans, in the hollow of his hand. See, that's a little far more complicated, you might say, than the details of our little puny lives. <laughs> and when something happens, we throw our hands up and freak out. And, oh, God, you don't know what's going on. Or, yes, he does. He knows exactly what's going on. So we need to kind of set aside that game that we play. And we need to start seeking wisdom that's in the Bible. Where alone it may be found and seize every opportunity to live for God and witness to our all-wise God and Heavenly Father. Well, two more things here quickly. The unsearchable judgments of God. Not only the knowledge and the wisdom, but the unsearchable judgments of God. He says, how unsearchable are his judgments? Judgments or decrees have to do with God ordering of everything that happens, flowing from his infinite knowledge and his perfect wisdom. He never makes a mistake. He never makes an error. Charles Hodge says, says this, As of old, the ruler was also the judge. To judge often means to rule. Therefore, the same word is used for the decisions of the judge and the decrees of the ordinances of the ruler. So whether you're speaking of decrees or you're speaking of judgments, there's a couple things here about these judgments that we see are very clear. First of all, they're all for God's glory. They're all for God's glory. Every judgment that God hands down is for his glory. We don't think of that. We think, well, it's for our needs. God's mainly concerned about us. Remember what I said? It's not about you. <laughs> it's about God's glory. And if something difficult has to happen in your life for his glory, guess what? It's going to happen. It doesn't mean God's punishing you. Sometimes people, Christians even, they, something happens. They get sick or diagnosed with, oh, you know, I don't know what, you know, I don't know what I've been doing. It's, well, maybe I haven't been doing anything. You know, we so quickly to forget, look at something like Job. I mean, he was the most righteous guy on the face of the earth. I mean, I wouldn't want to walk in his shoes. I don't know about you, but I, I, I don't want to go down that path. But you know what? Hey, whatever God wants, because God is right. And whatever happens will be for his glory. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Psalm 19 says, why did he create the heavens and the earth? Not for our enjoyment, to display his glory. Why did Jesus come into the world? The answer, we say, well, to save us from our sins. No, that's not why. I mean, that's part of it, but that's not the complete reason. But we stop there. The greater answer was given by Jesus himself in John 17, 4, where he says, I, brought, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. He came for the glory of God. What would the saints be saying when they stand before the throne of God in heaven? Oh, God, you've been so good for us. Oh, thank you for this. The Bible tells us what we will be doing. Revelation 5.13, it says, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen. See, we're stuck in this self-centered, me-centered society and life in which we live. And we need to shake ourselves from that and realize that God has a judgment. God has a plan. It's for his glory. Secondly, all the decrees and judgments of God are one. This was interesting when I studied this because I never thought of this. 
But when you look at in different areas in the Bible where it speaks of God's judgments or God's decrees, the word, even in the Westminster uh, Confession of Faith, the word is singular. It's singular. And the reason is, is because God does not do things in sequence. See, that's how we think. Okay, I plan out my week. Monday, I'm going to do this. Tuesday, I'm going to do this. That's not how God works. Well, you say, why? Because God's not, he transcends time. <laughs> there is no tomorrow to God. Do you understand that? There's no yesterday. It's just amazing when you stop and think about it. He sees all things as a whole from the beginning. And what God foresees is only what he has foreordained or planned. Psalm 2 verse 7, it says, I will proclaim the decree, decree, singular, of the Lord. Romans 8 verse 28, we quote this a lot. We know that God in all things works for good to those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. No, purpose. Or in Ephesians chapter 3 verses 10 to 11, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose singular, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or in Acts chapter 2 verse 23, the man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. Charles Hodge in his systematic theology wrote this, it is inconsistent with the idea of absolute perfection that the purposes of God are successive or that he ever purposes what he did not originally intend Or that one part of his plan is independent from the other parts. It is one scheme and therefore one purpose. Thirdly, the decrees are eternal. God's decisions, we think, are made in time. Well, they're not. That's why God can say, you know what? Before the foundation of the the world, I chose you. Before the foundation of the world, I set my son on this path to the cross. Also, the decrees are wise. We've already seen that. God's perfect wisdom The psalmist says in Psalm 104, verse 24, How many are your works, O Lord? In wisdom you made them all. They're not only wise, they're also free. They're free. Even when formed under the influence of other minds and circumstances, our purposes are also free. The reason why men and women do not seek God in Romans 3.11, it says, is because they do not want to. Not because they're physically incapable of it. They're dead. They don't want to do it. We have to stop and realize that, you know what? God does not drag people into heaven. Pink says this, A.W. Pink. He says, God was alone when he made his decrees. He was free to decree or not to decree and to decree one thing and not another. This liberty we must ascribe to him who is supreme, independent, and sovereign in all his doings. That's why Paul says here in Romans 3.34, what? Who understands the mind of the spirit of God? Who has instructed him as his counselor? Who did the Lord consult to enlighten him? Or who taught him the right way? That's in Isaiah 40. We read that. They're also absolute and unconditional. And we'll close with this. They're absolute and unconditional. It speaks to the immutability of God, the unchangeableness of God. God doesn't change his mind. He doesn't wake up one day and say, oh, you know, sorry, I made this mistake. The psalmist says in Psalm 33, 11, the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. James tells us in chapter 1 verse 17 that God does not change like the shifting shadows. Isaiah 46.10 says, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. And lastly, the decrees are effective. They are effective. Not one thing that God wills or one thing that God's 
desire decrees or his judgments will prove to be ineffective. And that should allow us to rest a little bit. And that's why they says there that they're unsearchable. You can't be searched to the bottom. That's what it's speaking. It's talking about the depth of something. They're unsearchable. And I just think it's interesting as we go through these in chapter, in verse 33 there, then he begins to ask these questions. Who has, my, who has known the mind of the Lord? What's that speak to? That speaks to God's knowledge, right? We spoke about that. Who has been his counselor? What's that speak to? That speaks to God's wisdom. Or who has given a gift to him that he might need repaid? What does that talk about? That talks about the riches of God that we started out with. So when you stop and think about the God that we serve, beloved, it doesn't take a rocket science to figure out that, you know what? He's God. We're not. There's no one like him. And it's best that we get our act together and understand what his will and purpose is for our lives. And when you stop and you think on that Palm Sunday when Jesus rode on that donkey into Jerusalem, first of all, it was the wrong animal. It should have been a white horse because all his disciples, everybody thought that he was going into Jerusalem to just clean up with the Romans. He's going to free him. Finally, it's come. This time, the Messiah has come. We're going to take this place by storm. Even though he told them he's got to go and die, they didn't get it. Why? Because of their pride. They didn't want to get it. When he rode in and people began to realize, wait a minute, what's going on here? He's not getting an army together. He's, they're, they're, they're capturing him. Whoa, now they're going to kill him? Can you imagine throughout the week all those people claiming to praise their Messiah as he rode in there? And yet by Friday, their palm branches were thrown down and they were ready to crucify him, exchange his life for the life of a murderous thief. Father, we pray today that you would help us to understand more fully just how great you are as our God. Help us never to take that for granted. Lord, we can't completely understand it, but we can just tap into a a tip of the iceberg as we look at your knowledge, we look at your wisdom, we look at your judgments, your decrees, and even the way you do things. They're just amazing. It's, it's, It's beyond anything that we could ever conceive. And yet, Lord, we get all, all of our emotions in a fix when something doesn't go right in our life, thinking somehow that you've forgotten us or you're, you're not watching over us or where is God? I just don't feel his presence. But you say you're there and you're overseeing our lives just like you always have. And Father, we can take a deep breath and realize that, you know what? The God that saves us is the God that will keep us. That as a child of God, nothing will happen to us outside of his sovereign will whether that's good or whether that's bad in our mind. It's all for your glory. And so, Lord, I pray that you would change our heart in this area. Help us to see that your knowledge and your wisdom can flow through us to a certain degree, and that we can accept your judgments and your paths, even though they may at times be hard. Lord, I pray for each heart that's here today. Lord, I pray that you would, if there's any here who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, that, Lord, that you would help them to acknowledge, show them that they're a sinner. Help them to realize that there's no, no other place to go to for, for, for forgiveness of sin. You don't need to go to the pastor. You don't need to go to the priest. You don't need to go to the church. You need to go to Christ. You need to come to the cross. And you lay your sins down there. And you'll never pick them up again. Because they will be forgiven by his sacrifice. That he laid down his life for you. If that's a desire of your heart this morning, I pray that you'd cry out to God. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And show me the need that I have for you in my life. And as believers, I just pray this week that we would be faithful to the call of the gospel and be willing to share with those around us the wonderful message of grace and forgiveness that we have in Christ. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.
Well, thank you for spending time with us here today on Graceful Truth, the ministry of Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. It's our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal His grace to your hearts through the teaching of His Word each week. And we trust you're currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area. If not, we'd love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m. We offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up to grade five. And if you would like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. Our phone number is 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. We meet at 2225 Euclid Avenue here in Redwood City. And directions are on our website, gracefultruth.org, or again, simply call 650 650- 366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. And again, we'd love to have you join us for worship. Simply call for directions or go to our website, gracefultruth.org. While you're at our website, make sure to check out the resource materials available from us here at Graceful Truth, including past programs of Graceful Truth that you can download for free. Gracefultruth.org is where to go. If you're writing to us, our address is 2225 Euclid Avenue. That's 2225 Euclid Avenue. We're here in Redwood City. The zip code is 94061. And again, our phone number is 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. We thank you for spending time with us today and trust we'll see you next week at this same time for another broadcast of Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse.